Swamiji, in another interview, you spoke about creating communities, and I'm curious to know what led to the creation of these communities. Well, when I was 15 was when I first got the idea. So you can say maybe it was a mission of mine in this life. But uh, then I met Yogananda and became his disciple. And I found that that was a very keen uh, interest of his also. He talked all his life about the importance of forming communities. And uh, so I remember especially a garden party that he had in Beverly Hills in which he was declaring with great force the need for such communities. And I vowed that I would do it in, if I could. And so in 1968, I was able to, but that was really my motivation. Why did I have that motivation at 15? Well, that was while World War II was raging. And uh, I just was aware that things were falling apart. And I was thinking that if values fall apart, if a small group of people can conserve them, we can bring those values back to civilization. Essentially, it's that now, because I think although the world is falling apart, these communities and from these communities, the, the society will take new, ener new energy, new impetus. It certainly seems that the trend is towards bigger and bigger cities. But there's also a trend towards smallness. I suspect that uh, you can't have depression without there being a lot of unrest, and that kind of unrest, I suspect there will be warfare. And you've got terrorism going on. There's, you can't expect man to be peaceful if they're going to be that way every day in their daily lives. Therefore, I think that, that uh, there will be warfare. And if one person drops an atom bomb, that won't be the last of it. There will be retaliation. In fact, I think there are now over 30,000 known atomic weapons stockpiled in the world. You can't have that kind of thing and not see it used. I think they're going to see the cities of this world destroyed. I think the, the, the move in the future will have to be toward the country. Swami, you spoke about discipleship, and I think for many people that concept is uh, a foreign one or an unfamiliar one at least. I, well, if, if you want to know God, I, I at least reached this point. I had tried to find truth all my life, even as a little child. I want to know what was true. At that time, I remember um, my father was shaving in the bathroom, and I said, Dad, there can't be a Santa Claus can there. I mean, how can one person cover all the <laughs> chimneys in the world? And besides that, many houses don't have chimneys. And he didn't want to tell a lie, and he didn't want to um, destroy the myth of a child. And so he sort of equivocated. I understood perfectly, and I decided that it was much more fun to believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> so my, my search for truth did not obviate the need for fun also. <laughs> but I find, I, I really was sincerely seeking truth, and I sought it through science, I sought, thought it through politics, I sought it through political systems, I should say. I sought it through um, the arts. I came to realize that 
without God, you can't get an answer. And I remember thinking to myself one night, I went out into the dark asking myself, if there's a God, what must he be? And I finally realized he has to be consciousness because I'm conscious and I'm asking that question then I have to be a part of that consciousness. I must be a dream of that consciousness. And if that's true, then my job in life must be to attune myself to his consciousness. And the find, I find that there are times when my mind is more open and clearer, and times when my mind is duller. And it's important that I develop a clear mind, and therefore, I must live a controlled life and must stop drinking and smoking and uh, living in a haphazard way. And I came to realize then that uh, God is the answer and I must seek him. Now, what was your question again? Well, I was asking about discipleship because yeah. people well, often... at that time, I reached the point where I just began to realize I needed help. I just couldn't, I couldn't find uh, my way out of this, this uh, labyrinth of confusion. I'd try to work on one quality and another would come up and, and uh, I didn't know what to do. And at that time when I really turned to God and I said, God, please help me, he sent me a teacher. Now, in India, they say that you must have a guru if you're going to find God. Many people ask me, do I need a guru? I say, no, you don't need a guru. But once you want to, once you want to know God, then you do. At that time in my life, it was amazing because I didn't know anything about the Indian tradition. It was foreign to me. And uh, my parents were, my father was a prominent person in Esso, and he was sent to explore for oil in Cairo, in Egypt. And the day that I put my mother on the ship, I went uptown New York, and I found autobiography of a yogi. And I realized that here I had discovered somebody who knew what he was talking about. Nobody else seemed to know what they were talking about, but I felt he did. And so for the first time in my life, I thought, well, I want to be a disciple. I want to learn from this wise man. And I took a bus nonstop across the country, four days and four nights by bus. And when I met him, my first words were, I want to be your disciple. I've been that now for over 63 years. Swami, some people think that discipleship implies a certain mindlessness. Well, it certainly didn't in this case. <laughs> he challenged you and he made things. You know, it's interesting. Jesus, at one point, he said to people, you have to drink my blood and eat my body. Well, it says in the Bible, many left him from this point on. Well, of course they would. He was challenging their understanding. And he said to his close disciples, will you leave me too? And they said, where can we go? But that was because they had realized that whatever he said, he did know the truth and they could get it from him. And they finally understood what he meant. 
He meant that you have to drink my, my consciousness hmm. and you have to absorb the energy of that consciousness. The whole idea of the Mass and the Eucharist and the uh, take, eating of Christ's body and the wafer and the blood, it's not cannibalism. <laughs> it's this deep mysticism, deep mystical truth. But the Guru challenges his disciples to make sure they understand. And sometimes he makes it very difficult to understand, just so that they will use their own discrimination and their own intuition. He doesn't want mindless disciples. So when we read of gurus who, who seem to flaunt tradition or who seem crazy, of whom there have been quite a few in the 20th century, are they not true gurus? Or? Well, there are plenty of gurus who are not true gurus. I say that anybody who wants to be a guru is not a true guru. <laughs> he's, he's really only his purpose is to bring people to God. And uh, <clears throat> there was one guru who, as a test, threw stones at his disciples. And one disciple took this stone and placed it reverently on the altar. And the next morning he saw that it was a bar of gold. <laughs> so, if you understand and accept it in the name of God, whatever discipline and training he gives you, then he will be able to give you more. Swamiji, it seems a, quite a privilege and blessing to find a guru in well, this world. How do, you do, how do you go about finding one? What, you don't look for the guru, you look for God. When you really want God, he will send you the help you need. And he'll send it to you first through books, through lectures, through whatever wise person you may meet. But it does take a great blessing to uh, Shankaracharya, says the greatest blessing in all the three worlds, the causal world, the astral world, and the physical world, mm. to find a true guru. Because he not only gives you something, he gives you his own self. What he has, he gives to you. What can we do to prepare ourselves? Be humble before God and say, God, I will do anything you ask of me, but help me to know you. We must really, we must have that. The first thing on the spiritual path is devotion, longing for God. Otherwise, it's like living next door to a restaurant that is maybe the most famous restaurant in the world. <laughs> you may know its menu. You may know everything they serve. But if you aren't hungry, you won't go there. So you've got to be hungry for truth. And that hunger well, I had it all my life. I wanted to know truth. When you have that longing, then God will fulfill it. But don't think that it comes just automatically. And it's a great blessing to have a true guru. And I would say, how do you find your guru? See God, yes, but another thing is shop the counter. Go down the whole counter and see which one appeals to you most. Because there are many paths to God. That path which resonates with your own inner nature, that's the one to follow. One man in Los Angeles told a friend of mine that he had been seeking God. He had a little cap and he was meditating. One day he came back from a walk and he found a man sitting outside and the man had a turban. He was from India. It turned out he was his guru. He had materialized there to help him. So wherever you are, the saying is, 
that when the disciple is ready, the guru appears. And you could be at the North Pole and find him when you are ready. So the important thing is to become ready yourself by longing for, longing for God, by always acting the truth, seeking the truth in everything, by never telling yourself lies about yourself. Always be truthful with yourself. Always be honest with whatever your motives are. Never blame other people. Say, where am I at fault? How can I do this better? You will see that in this, in this practice that you'll gradually turn more and more toward this longing to know what life is all about. And you can long for it in many different ways. You can long for it as a Catholic, as the Virgin Mary or something. Just somebody will take you to that. But let it be a longing for truth. And you will find that God will send you a guru who will lead you.